Now we turn to Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Let me remind you, and we have some who are new with us from time to time, that historically preaching is expository in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, a text is taken and expounded. The reason for that, of course, is that this is God's revealed word to us, and the authority is found in the text. And so you actually need a Bible open in front of you, read the text, then don't close it, but keep it open, because we will constantly reference the text. We're expounding the text that is in front of us. And we believe that that is honoring to the Lord and His Word, and that it grows God's people in the faith. So we come to the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews tonight, and we'll be reading verses 19 through 25. Let's bow in prayer first. Our Father and our God, we ask that you will help us to love the Bible and to love the text before us, to drink it in, not to allow anything to hinder us from hearing your word, that we would hate sin, that we would love those things that are in accord with your attributes and nature, and that you would conform us to the image of your own dear Son, having heard this word. Make us to be, as children of the living God, by faith in Jesus Christ, growing Christians, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19. This is the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed With pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, The writer of the book of Hebrews in the preceding text has focused upon the finished work of Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ came and offered a full, complete, sufficient atonement to redeem us sinners from our sins. For example, in verse 10 of this passage, he says, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, a finished, complete work of sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Now we come to this passage in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, and the writer would have us to act upon that reality, to draw out that reality. He wants us to see the great implication of what that means for our entrance into the very presence of the living God. And so in view of what Christ has done, we have access to God, and he is saying to us, Because you have access to God, make use of that privilege. Use that privilege that is purchased for you, church of God, at the high price of Jesus' blood. Apply the truth that you have learned. Because the New Testament stresses the connection between theology and action, truth and life, truth is to be lived out in the Christian life. He brings to us three exhortations in this text. And the first exhortation is 
let us draw near. It is found in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now he argues to get to that point. And he begins to help us to understand how it is that we can draw near into the presence of a holy God by beginning, in verse 19, emphasizing our confidence. So he says, therefore, brothers, in verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, it's important that we understand that confidence is not, first of all, a subjective state. In other words... He is not talking about a feeling of confidence. He is not saying, because you feel confident, enter into the presence of God. People of God, never trust your moods. Never trust your moods. Never allow that to to supplant what you know to be the real foundation of your faith, which is the blood of Christ and His righteousness wrought on the cross for us. No, no, this confidence is a freedom of access that is given with the blood of Jesus Christ. It is grounded in His high priestly work for us. Now, certainly how you and I feel should be influenced by this objective reality. But if I don't feel bold, that objective confidence that is won for me by Christ is not removed by my fickleness by my fleeting emotions. Do not base your Christian life upon emotions. May God give you great feeling for Christ, but never allow those feelings to be confused for the foundation of your faith and the foundation that you have for entering into the presence of the living God. You remember how he put it in chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice how he puts it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, this is something that is an objective reality. We have it. Its ground is in Jesus and his blood. Not through our merits, but he says explicitly, by the blood of Jesus. In striking contrast to the exclusion of God's people from the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament service on the Day of Atonement, Christ has entered in and we follow in union with Him. We are granted in Him bold access into the presence of the living God. And this, of course, as He continues to argue that we draw near to Him This confidence is a confidence that takes us all the way through the veil. Through the veil. For he says in verse 20, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Through the veil or through the curtain. It is a new way. Not through old structures such as the tabernacle or temple not through the blood of bulls and goats that could never take away sins, but new because we have a new covenant. Ever new because it is never old in Christ. It is a living way because Christ is a living person, because He lives, because He rose, because He ascended, because He is our living Lord at the right hand of the Father. And so... 
through this new way, this living way, we actually go through the veil. Now you recognize that immediately to be a reference to that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place in which only the high priest could enter once a year making atonement for the sins of the people, picturing for us that full and complete atonement wrought by Jesus when he shed his blood on the cross for us. And so, you will remember that that was off limits, and now the writer says it is no longer off limits. Now you may come, now you have access, now you have entrance. The high priest entered once a year. The veil was rent, however, from top to bottom when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And at the crucifixion, this indicated that God has intervened into our plight and has opened freely the access to him through the blood of Jesus. And so that veil points to, represents, was a symbol of, a type of the flesh of Jesus that must be torn and rent so that we might have access. Do you realize what it costs you, people of God, that you and I might have free access into the very throne room of God? It costs Jesus his life, the Son of God, the infinite Son of God shedding his blood for us. The way to God, then, is through Christ's flesh, through his sacrifice. He suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, says Peter. So the barriers are removed. Every barrier has now been removed. There are no barriers for you, child of God, when it comes to this matter of coming to your heavenly Father. The no entrance sign has been taken away. Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. And so if your faith is truly in Christ, through the blood of Christ, that veil that has now been rent for you, you may come into the most holy place itself and fellowship with your heavenly Father. Imagine being brought to a palace in some monarchy. And there you think to yourself, I could never enter there. There's a sense of foreboding about it. There is a a sense and recognition of reverence, even as you come near to the place. How could I ever go in and see the king? How could I ever do this? But now imagine that the prince is your friend, and the prince takes you by the hand, and he says, you're my friend, come with me. I'll introduce you to the king. This is precisely what the prince of princes has done. He has taken us into the very throne room of God, And he has said, Father, through my shed blood, he is my friend and he is your friend. And we have access into the very courtroom of God himself. All together by his priesthood, as he says in verse 21, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. So that the confidence that we have of coming into his presence is our compassionate glorified high priest who shed his blood and who intercedes for us on high. No wonder, as John Owen observed, the office of Christ that Satan labors so hard to obscure is the priestly office of Christ. The office that he most wants to denounce and trounce is the priestly office and sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord. That is why I, as your pastor, am so concerned 
by all of the varied views of atonement that are now going around, old heresies that are cropping up again, becoming popular. Someone mentioned to me this morning talking with someone that was a a student in a a certain uh, Christian college. And he said to that uh, student, you know, Christ shed his blood and died for us. That student said to him something to the effect, you know, I think there is nothing more ridiculous than the thought that Jesus substituted himself on the cross for me. He is being taught the moral influence view of the atonement, evidently, rather than the substitutionary biblical concept of the atonement. And it's a frightening thing, my friend, when we see the atoning work of Christ as the substitute of sinners being denounced or ignored and not preached and not proclaimed when it is the fundamental issue for our salvation. And so it is through his priesthood. So for all of these reasons, he says, because we have this confidence, because we have the torn veil through which we enter through the priesthood of Christ, he says, let us draw near. Look at verse 22 again. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our access is no longer fenced, but open for us as believers in Jesus with sincere, full assurance of faith in the promises of God we may now enter. Our hearts sprinkled with Jesus' blood because your new situation in the new covenant means that your heart and conscience is sprinkled with the blood that has been applied to your conscience and washed with pure water, just as we read in Ezekiel 36, and your life has been cleansed by Jesus' blood. In chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, the writer put it this way, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of an heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In this passage in chapter 9, and in this verse in chapter 10, in both places he references the sprinkling of the conscience with Jesus' blood. I want to take a moment to underscore that. Because only God knows the heart, and I certainly do not. And I want to ask the question, has your conscience been sprinkled with Jesus' blood? Each of us has a conscience, and that conscience says there's a day of judgment coming in which I will stand and give an account. And if you give an account on that day, and your conscience has not been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, then, my friend, you are still in your sin and bound in guilt, and you will be doomed and damned on that day. That is what the Bible teaches. There is only one way to enter into the presence of God, and that is through the veil, His flesh, a conscience and heart that has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And so I ask, have you trusted in Jesus as your Redeemer and Savior? And has your heart been sprinkled and your conscience washed clean by the blood of this eternally valuable sacrifice? Again, I say, there is no other way that you may have entrance into the Father's presence in acceptance rather than judgment, but by trusting Jesus alone to cleanse your heart and to cleanse your conscience. I ask, is it true in your life? 
So if you know who God is, how could you think of coming into the presence of a holy God in any other way? How can I be sure of acceptance? The only way to know that you are accepted is by trusting in Christ who bore the sinner's guilt and sin, and by faith to know that you were clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we dare not come. We cannot come. Your pass must be signed by Jesus' blood entering the gates of heaven. Now, apply this to the inner moods and feelings that so often control us Christians. You know those moods and feelings of which I speak. Sometimes you're exuberant in the faith. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you feel it very deeply. Sometimes, to our shame, we do not. Those moods can keep you from prayer. Oh, I feel that I'm a sinner to such a degree and in such a way that how can I come into the presence of the living God? Well, my friend, here's the answer to the question. Preach this gospel to yourself. Preach this gospel to your heart, this good news. Of course, in and of myself, I'm a sinner, but I'm not in myself. I am in union with Christ. I am dressed and clothed in His righteousness. In Him, I have a perfect record before the Father, and so I come boldly. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved from these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. That's why James, in the fourth chapter of his little book, can say, Submit yourselves therefore to God, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Because he has come near through the blood of Christ, cleansed your heart and conscience, you now may draw near to him, and God has promised to draw near unto you. Now I ask the question, not because I'm trying to approach you with guilt or shame, but because I want to grow in grace, and as your pastor, I want you to grow in grace. What is your prayer life like? How are you in your prayer life? Are you praying throughout the day? Are you finding time alone with the Lord? Are you opening your heart to Him? Are you confessing before Him your need? Are you trusting daily in Christ? Are you going before Him and pleading for blessing upon His church? Are you pleading for those who need Jesus? Are you pleading for your families and your friends? And do you have kingdom prayers that remember the world around you and that this world needs the gospel? I ask, how is your prayer life? Well, that's what this is all about. Don't you see? You now have access into the Father's presence. Let us draw near. And so if your prayer life has been lacking, greatly lacking, perhaps you've become lackadaisical over the summer, let this be a time in which you believe and repent and trust, and you go to Him. And you say, Father, I know, I know I have free access into your presence, not because of who I am, not because of anything I could have done, but altogether because of who Jesus is. Will someone take this seriously? And tonight... Find your prayer closet, take this text, and say, Father, I understand through Jesus' blood and righteousness, 
that I may truly enter in and draw near. Will someone draw near to God starting tonight who has not been drawing near to God? There is a second exhortation, and it's found in verse 23. It's that we hold fast. Let's look at it. We've seen, let us draw near, verse 23, tells us to hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, it's interesting just to mention in passing this triad. We have faith in verse 22, hope in verse 23, and love in verse 24. This great triad of faith, hope, and love. And he tells us to hold fast. Now, keep your mark here and go back to chapter 3. And notice that in verse 6, we've been told to hold fast before. Hebrews 3.6 And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then in verse uh, 14. He tells us we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then in chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great priest, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And now we come to this text, chapter 10, verse 23. And he tells us once again, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast in hope. That hope that looks to the future, that's what hope is. It looks to the promise of God and clings to the promise that he has given to us of a a future in Christ. Let us hold fast that hope. Now, is this works righteousness? Is the writer saying it all depends on you? And is he saying you have to work it up and... No, he's not saying that at all. Calvin puts it beautifully. Just as hope is the child of faith, so it is fed and sustained by faith to the end. Moreover, he demands confession because there is no true faith that does not show itself to men. And so, as we labor to hold fast, it is because he holds fast to us. It's all based on the faithfulness of God to his promises. Again, verse 23 is explicit. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. First Peter tells us that we have this great inheritance that is guarded for us, but it also tells us that we are guarded for that inheritance. Bruce, F.F. Bruce, says it beautifully. Our hope is based on the unfailing promises of God. Why should we not cherish it confidently and confess it boldly? And so, what does it mean in your everyday living to hold fast this hope that has been given to us through the promises of God? It means to walk faithfully believing that no matter what I see in life, That no matter what I may hear that seems to contradict it, that no matter what may come into my life that I do not understand, that even in the greatest perplexities of life, I hold fast to this hope 
because God has promised his faithfulness to me. I always love that story about Luther and Kitty, his wife. She was a great woman, by the way. We always say he was a great man, indeed he was, but I'm telling you, behind every great man is a great woman, and this was a great woman. One day, Luther, in the midst of the battle for the Protestant Reformation, feels so desperately depressed. You remember the story, don't you? He felt so desperately depressed, she couldn't bring him out of it. Nothing she said, nothing she could do. It finally dawned on her what to do. And so she dressed herself in black, walked in front of Martin Luther, until finally he noticed, Kitty, he said, who died? God died, she said. What? What blasphemy? How could you say that? She said, well, that's how you're acting. God used that to wake him up. Now, let that text say that to you and say that to me. Why is it that in the midst of the trials of life, the hardships of defending the faith or the seriousness of illness, we can say, oh God, where are you? Where all the time his fatherly hand is upon us and he loves us and he keeps us and his promises never fail. We must hold fast to that hope because we know there is a faithful God who has proven his faithfulness to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's Christian living. That's living in hope. But now we must go on and look at there. There is one final exhortation. Let us consider one another. Now we've seen two already. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And now in verse 24, let us consider one another. Look at it, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In chapter 3, verse 1, he said, consider Jesus. And now he says, consider each other. Someone has said, the readers will be the more apt to confess their hope courageously and unhesitatingly if they encourage one another. Christian faith and witness will flourish the more vigorously in an atmosphere of Christian fellowship. One translation translates the passage this way. We ought to see how each of us may best arouse others to love and active goodness. And so do you, do I, do, are we thinking this way? Do you actually think, I need to arouse my brothers and sisters to good things? Or do we think ill of our brothers and sisters? But you see, he really, he really brings it home when he stresses worship and the life of the body of Christ by telling us in verse 25, not forsaking the assembly of one another together. It's an exhortation to be faithful in the local Christian fellowship with the people of God all around you. Romans chapter 15, verse 7, the apostle says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Perhaps for fear of the authorities, so they would not be recognized as Christians. They were reluctant to gather together. 
Perhaps others were reluctant because they actually said, well, I'm saved, why do I need other people? People like that usually don't last and are not really saved. Or perhaps some have just grown weary. Perhaps others have grown lazy. Maybe others have allowed their hearts to be controlled by bitterness, or they harbor coldness, or they have unreasonable expectations of the church leadership or their brothers and sisters. But as someone has rightly said, to withdraw from the the society of their fellow believers was to court spiritual defeat. Only by remaining united could they preserve their faith and witness. So let me say that to you and to me, that if we follow that independent course in which we don't care about worship together and accountability, mutual accountability in the body of Christ, then we are courting spiritual defeat. And only by remaining together will we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and preserve our faith and witness God has promised to keep His people, but God has promised to keep His people through the means of His appointment. And the means that He has appointed, the means, are the Word of God, the sacraments, prayer, the fellowship of His people, worship. He has promised to keep His people. He will not let none of His go. None will perish. But he has promised to keep his people through the means of his own appointment. My friend, what this requires of me and of you is loving the church that Christ purchased with his own shed blood. Believing that the church, for all of her blemishes, is the glorious body of Christ. And by knowing and feeling within your heart, I have a bond with this church because Christ has bound himself to me. So he says, don't forsake the assembly and encourage, which means urge on, exhort, comfort, strengthen your brothers and sisters. So look around you and just take a moment to do it. Just look around you. Nobody's going to consider you rude if you do what the pastor asks. Just look around you. Where is the church? The church is sitting right next to you, you see? All around you. This is the church. The people of God. You are the church, and so you are responsible for the ethos of the church. If the ethos of the church is not good, we are responsible. The only way the ethos of the church is going to be a God-honoring ethos that puts Christ first, exhorts one another, is if I and if you are taking seriously what the Bible teaches us on this theme. One has said, one who is genuinely involved in assisting others usually has little time to indulge his fears or nurse resentments which might cause him to forsake the fellowship of the saints. In other words, serving others show that you are free in Christ. And if you're serving others, you won't have a lot of room for complaint.
So do so, he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see that, don't you, here in chapter 10. This wondrous truth of the return of Christ, look at verse 25 again, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, recently in services, a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening, we've had opportunity to look at 1 John 3, 2 and 3, 2 Peter 2, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, Romans 13, 10 to 14, all of these passages that teach us what it means to live consistently with the promise of the return of Jesus Christ. Well, here's another. Matter of fact, it's already happened in verse 28 of the preceding chapter, chapter 9. So Christ, this is the last verse of chapter 9, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So, what is he saying to us? He is saying, we need to keep our gaze on that promised hope that is before us, and as you do so, it will transform your living in the present. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary on Hebrews, makes such a wondrous comment on this, I want you to hear it. Listen. The period between the first advent of Christ and his parousia, his return, and the end time, the last days, the last hour, whatever the duration of the period may be, for faith, the time is at hand. Each successive Christian generation is called upon to live as the generation of the end time if it is to live as a Christian generation. This being so, the question is, how can the tension between the eschatological and historical existence of faith be retained over a period of time? In other words, Christ says he's going to come, but he's not come, and it's been over 2,000 years. How do we keep within us this sense of urgency regarding his return? Bruce says, The most satisfactory answer is the Pauline answer, which while given in the first Christian generation is equally applicable to every Christian generation. If we live by the Spirit, by the Spirit let us also walk. For the Spirit is the pledge and the first fruits of the heritage of glory to be entered by believers at the return of Christ. In keeping with this answer, our author insists that since Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to offer himself to God as the perfect sacrifice for his people's sin, those who acknowledge him as apostle and high priest have already experienced the powers of the age to come and receive the kingdom which cannot be shaken. Thus they anticipate, thus you, you believers, anticipate here and now the consummation for which they hope. Let them hold this hope fast by unswerving loyalty to Christ. And so, we have three exhortations in this passage. Have you heard them? I mean, have you heard them? Heard a preacher once, really like this, I think I told you. We teach our children to cut out hearts, you know, and their crafts. We tell them to make two ears. How do you hear? Are you hearing? The first is, let us draw near. Christ died for you, believer. 
Draw near. Don't hesitate. Be bold. The second, hold fast. Keep moving. Persevere. Because God has made His promises to you. And the third, intimately related to the first two, is consider one another. Spur others on to good deeds. Living faithfully in the body of Christ. Being a part of His people. Not hanging on the edge, but dive in there and really be a part of the people for whom Christ gave His life. Live in joyful expectation of Christ's glorious coming again. Again, Calvin was right when he said, we should continually expect His second revelation and think of it each day as though it were the last. May the Lord enable you and me to obey, hear these exhortations from His Word.